Today is Palm Sunday. Um, when I was a kid, it was awesome. I mean, for, for many of you guys, you had the same experience that, that I do. And I think there have even been times where um, in the last, you know, since I've moved to kind of Bible church, evangelicalism, Lord, we've still had some palms in some services. But when I was a kid and we would go to mass, it was just it was all about these giant leaves everywhere. You know, it was just such a fun morning and such a fun thing to have these tactile leaves and wave them around. And it was a party. I mean, this day was a day of absolute celebration and excitement. It was like we were being called to get right in there with the celebrating um, people of Jerusalem, the throngs, and just enjoy and be excited about Jesus, the King coming. But before we think about Palm Sunday, which is what today is, we have to think about Passover because the reason why the crowd was so big and so ready was because Palm Sunday comes at the beginning of the Passover feast. And so the beginning of our Holy Week every year is always the beginning of Passover week, the feast for the Jewish people. And, and that's really the context of our passage today. So before I go too far down this road, would you guys open up your Bibles to John 12? If you have your Bibles or you have your phones, if at all possible, I would just ask you to get those, uh, either your Bible or your phone, because we're going to be looking at John 12. And we're also going to be looking a lot at Zechariah 9. So if you have the ability to put you know, a placeholder in both places. Today's texts are going to be John 12. That's going to be our primary text, but we're going to do some deep dives into Zechariah 9 because it's very related to John 12 and Palm Sunday, as you guys will see as we go. Um, so I forgot to do this too. So our, our message this morning is, Behold our humble King, John 12, Zechariah 9. Behold our humble King, you guys see that? That's our message this morning. And and our first our first heading this morning is the crowd. The crowd. I've got three C headings. I've got the crowd, the king, and the confusion. Well, the king is not C, but it's all got the k k sound. So this morning is the crowd. Some alliteration for you guys. Uh, the crowd. And we're going to start in John 12. And um, I'm going to read just a couple of verses at a time and then talk and then read a couple of verses at a time and then talk. So starting in John 12, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Even the king. Even the king of Israel! So, this huge crowd comes to celebrate the king of Israel, Jesus, as he enters the city. And again, the reason why, as I said a few minutes ago, it was such a huge crowd is because it was the Passover feast. The Passover feast is the celebration of Israel being released from Egypt. And at this point in Israel's history, that day was 1,500 years old, 1,500 years before this day that Jesus, not our day today, but the day that Jesus comes in, Israel 
had been freed from slavery in Egypt. And at the centerpiece of the Passover is that final plague, the, the, the killing of the firstborn of all the houses, households of Egypt. And Israel would, at the same time, they would slaughter a lamb in every household. And they were still in bondage, but they would take the blood of the lamb and they would cover the doorposts of their home with it while they had their supper, the Passover supper. And and on that evening, you guys remember this, the Lord's angel came from heaven and took the life of every firstborn in Egypt and every person who didn't have the lamb blood over their doorway, every single household in the land. But if the angel of the Lord saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over that home and everyone inside would be safe. So you can hear the word Passover in the feast Passover, and that's why it's called Passover. I'm going to move my notes real quick. Over here. Okay. So getting back to the actual night of Passover, that terrible night, 1500 earlier years, when Pharaoh had his firstborn killed by, killed by God's angel, along with the firstborn of every home in Egypt taken from them, Pharaoh finally, after many, 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 probably weeks of appeals, he finally released Israel, and they were free to be a nation. And now, some 1,500 years later, hundreds of thousands of people from Israel and from the world far away, from other nations where the Jews were, or Jewish proselytes of other ethnicities, have all come down to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. And they've come to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, just as they did every year. And what I think is really good for us to think about, to put ourselves there, is to think about the numbers. The crowd would have been immense, like way beyond any stadium you've ever been to. Um, One ancient estimate comes from the famous historian Josephus. And he says that 2.7 million people took part in the Passover feast from all over Judea. So 2.7 million people from all over come to the Passover feast, and that does not include foreigners from people outside of Israel. And so of this 2.7 million, there is a crowd that's enormous who've come to see Jesus. And, And John, when he tells about the crowd, he doesn't really offer any differentiation between the the crowd that had come to the feast and the crowd that comes to see Jesus. He just says the large crowd who had come to the feast went out to meet Jesus, verses 12 through 13. So we don't know how big the crowd was, but it's possible that this crowd was tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets. It was enormous. And when the Pharisees describe the crowd in verse 19, they say the whole world, they say the whole world has gone out to meet him. So this was, by all intents that we can kind of search out, it was massive. And and in terms of Jesus, you know, he timed this whole thing over three years. He was always in control of his destiny, and he had timed this to be his coming out party as the king of Israel. And this is, so for Jesus, this is three years of him speaking as God the Son, speaking God's God's words, doing God's work, power on earth that no one had ever seen before, miracles 
over the sea, miracles over storms, as we read about last week, thousands of miracles over demons and disease, healing people wherever he went, teaching wherever he went. Three years, Jesus free and celebrated in Israel increasingly, and it all culminates in this. And now he has called to himself a massive crowd who lets their desire uh, be known. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. Think tens of thousands of people probably. Jesus is our king. Now, we got to stop and think about Jesus as our king. Because unless we like get ourselves in the shoes of these folks, it's hard for us to understand their hunger and thirst for a king. The Jewish people have not had a true Davidic, like son of David king for 600 years. The last time they had a king was when King Zedekiah was taken by exile in chains to Babylon. And that was it for them, six centuries. So for us, it would be like, I mean, and the king meant much, much more than our president does. But if we go back, you know, to the year 1400, you know, before our nation was, they're looking back to 1400 as a nation. That was the last time they had a leader that they really felt like they could believe in. And for most of their history, since then, by God's decree, the Jews had been ruled by other nations, by Babylon, cruelly, by Persia, by the Greeks, by the Romans, uh, since they'd lost their independence long ago. The king they have now was not a true son of David king. He wasn't in the line of David, and so they knew that. So Herod was somebody that they were forced to submit to, but he was not a legal king for Israel because he wasn't related to the line of David that God had given to be over the house of Israel forever. And so for hundreds of years, this nation, God's very own nation, at God's hand, and the prophets had told them this was God's hand upon them, had allowed them to be submitted and subjugated and in bondage to all these nations And they had been waiting for 600 years for the Messiah and longer. They've been waiting for the restored king of David's monarch. And, you know, you remember, if you recall, at Christmas time in the Advent, we read all these prophecies that promised a king would come. Think about Isaiah 9, a child is born to us, a king to sit on David's throne forever and ever. And there are countless other prophecies we could go through where Israel's promised a king and by this king deliverance out of bondage. So for them, Jesus was this hope they have of restoring a true king to Israel, not Herod, not Rome, uh, not any pretenders, but the true eternal king long promised by the ancient prophets. Jesus was that man for this frenzied, ecstatic crowd. They take up these palm branches which are symbols of national hope for Judah. They line the streets with them, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and that probably means save now, deliver us now. And they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So remember, (laughs) Jesus is not technically the king. Herod is the king. Jesus is not the ruler over Israel. Rome is the ruler over Israel. But thousands upon thousands and thousands of voices are screaming and shouting, this is our king. This is our king. It's it's got huge political ramifications. Um, So 
Jesus knows that they're doing this. He has for a long time, you know, initially hidden his uh, identity as Messiah. And then slowly over time, he starts to make it clear, I am the Messiah. And now the whole crowd, the whole world, according to the Pharisees, is saying he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. I mean, in some ways you could think it, it couldn't be more great, right? Like, didn't Jesus come to be king? Doesn't he want people receiving him as king? Like, that's his whole goal is he wants to come and be the Messiah. And now he's got maybe hundreds of thousands of people saying, yay, you're our king. You're our Messiah. What's he going to do? So our next point, the king. The king, point number two. Let's look at what Jesus does. Verse 14 and 15. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now that's a partial quote. Mainly it's a quote from Zechariah 9 and 10. We're going to go to Zechariah 9 verses 9 through 10 in a second. But I, I want to think about this for a second. It's like a little, almost like a dance, you know, the, the people hold up palm branches and they say, Psalm 118, you're our Messiah. You're the King of Israel. And in response, Jesus doesn't speak to them necessarily here, at least in this text in John. In response, he goes and gets a donkey. <laughs> and he's speaking to them back. It's like they're saying, Psalm 118, Psalm 118. And it's like Jesus saying, Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9. So they're, they're talking almost in, in, in psalms and symbols. So what's Jesus saying with this donkey? Well, first of all, he is saying, yes, I am your king. Yes, I am your king. But his answer is so different in another sense from what they were chanting for and asking for. And if they really thought about Zechariah 9, they might have started to see that. And so we need to think about that. Jesus chooses a donkey. He does not choose a warrior's horse. He doesn't choose a conquering stallion. He chooses a donkey. And now Jesus is responding to their Psalm 118 with Zechariah 9. And let's go to Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, and read what Zechariah had to say, because only really understanding that will we understand what Jesus is trying to say to the people in response to their Psalm 118, you're our king, you're our king, and his response of Zechariah 9, donkey, donkey, <laughs> I'm your king, but think about what this means. So Zechariah 9, the prophet is speaking, and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. By the way, when you hear Zion, you can think Jerusalem. You can think all of Israel, but at the heart of Israel is Jerusalem. And so he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah the prophet. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, colt, the fowl of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9. Now, let's think about this prophecy here. 
This is a prophecy from Zechariah, who's writing just like um, just like we talked about before. He's writing in exile around 520 BC, 60 long years after the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah, who was writing in chains. So when Zechariah is writing in 520 BC, these words about the king coming on a donkey, there is no king. The, 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 the Davidic line has been cut off. The Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. But here he is having a vision, and he's seeing this day. He's seeing in his mind, in his heart, prophetically, Palm Sunday. And here's what he says about this king. He says he's righteous. That's his quality. See, your king is coming to you, righteous. He says he brings salvation. He brings deliverance. Right, so there's some there's some need for deliverance. There's some need for salvation. Well, the king's bringing it, and and then he says this other thing that's curious and starts to really pick up speed in this picture. He says the king comes humble, humble, mounted on a donkey, riding a donkey. Here's how serious he is about his humility. Here's how central it is to his humility. His humility is not just hidden in his heart; it's displayed in this symbol of a donkey, like of all the symbols, it's not a sword, it's not a shield, it's not a crown, of all the symbols, I'm going to choose to explain to you the kind of king I am and what I've come to do, I'm going to come on a donkey. That's what Jesus went for. When that crowd came and they amassed and started screaming and shouting, Jesus makes a beeline, he says, get me a donkey immediately, you know, it's like, get me a donkey, stat. I need these people to understand something, or at least later I need them to understand something. Of all the things I could do or say, this is it. I want a donkey. And I don't think that's just because Jesus wants to say to them, yes, I'm your king. Yay, Zechariah 9, he said your king would come. Get me a donkey so you'll know I'm your king. No, what does that donkey mean? It means he's humble. It means he's not choosing a warrior's horse. He's choosing a lowly animal. And I think we'll see that more as we look at Zechariah 10 through 11. Let's go back to Zechariah 9 and look at verses 10 through 11. Back to Zechariah 9, looking at verses 10 through 11. Here's what Zechariah continues to see in his vision. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That's a warrior's chariot. He's saying, I will cut it off. And the horse from Jerusalem, that's a horse for war. And the bow of war will be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. For many people in the crowd that day, their shout for Jesus was a shout for liberation from oppression politically, militarily. Their shout was a shout for Jesus to relieve them from their circumstances of Roman occupation, of Herod's tyranny, of physical suffering, of national shame. 
And if we think about what Jesus is saying through the donkey and through everything that comes after Zechariah 9 after it, I think he's trying to say, I have not come the way that you're anticipating. My ways are not your ways. Zechariah speaks of a message of peace to all nations, not just Israel. The ruler who comes speaks peace to the nations, not overthrow, not war. His rule is universal, not just for Jerusalem. It goes to the ends of the earth. This is a worldwide kingdom he has sought to bring. And at the core of it, in verse 11, not only does he not say anything about conquest and armies and military overthrows, he says at the core, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free. Verse 11 of Zechariah 9, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free. So Zechariah's king has come to bring peace, not war. He's come to bring salvation to all people, including Rome, not just Israel. He's come to be humble and enact a covenant of blood. This king indeed comes with salvation but he does so humbly and peacefully and with a covenant of blood. And and so this all comes together for John. If we go back to John now in verse 15, in a curious way, you know, you're going to see the crowd like wanting something from Jesus. You're going to see the Pharisees wanting something from Jesus. You're going to see the disciples wanting something from Jesus. But In light of how Jesus is coming peacefully for the whole world and with a covenant of blood, he's saying something very different to all these people than they want him to say, as we'll see in a second. But John doesn't start out by saying he's not here for what you want. He he starts out by saying in, in, in verse 15, he says, fear not, fear not. Your king comes to you gentle. And then we saw all that we saw in Zechariah 9, fear not. And and John and Zechariah and Jesus are saying, do not be afraid of Rome. Do not be afraid of oppression. Do not be afraid of death. Why? Why? Because if we go back to Zechariah 9, the blood of the covenant is bringing peace with God through the whole world. The blood of the covenant is bringing peace with God. You don't have to fear Rome. You don't have to fear oppression. You don't have to fear death. And why? Because you don't have to fear God anymore. You don't have to fear Rome. You don't have to fear oppression. You don't have to be afraid of death. Why? Because you don't have to fear God anymore. And and we're going to come back to this, but it's really important to think about why does John say, do not fear. So hold that thought for a second, because I didn't really open up that as much as I want to. But I want to stop and pause and think about now what's the response, right? So you've got the crowd clamoring, you've got Jesus doing his thing, and now what's the response when these the crowd, the disciples, the Pharisees try to hear or engage Jesus' message? So this is our, our last point, the confusion. The confusion. Let's look briefly at verse 16 of John 15. Go back to John 15. We're going to look at verse 16. 
These things, that is Jesus getting the donkey, the quote from Zechariah, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. When we, when we look at the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, John, and Luke, you see this consistent theme that for the disciples, Jesus' humiliation on the cross, Jesus' approach to the cross, Jesus coming and saying, I have come to die, it's, it's never met with, yay, we get it. It's always met with confusion and fear. Like they, or even in some cases, you remember Peter he says, never, you know, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, every once in a while, you know, we, we might even see a, a rejection of Jesus' mission. But it's, it's always met with confusion, with fear, or in, in, in that case, at least with Peter, outright rejection. The very reason for Jesus' coming was misunderstood or rebuked by the closest friends he had throughout his ministry for three years. And so it is even here that Jesus don't understand and this allusion to Zechariah. And I think for us, it's really easy for us to look and say, oh, of course, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. But remember, like, they were, they were rooted in the history of Israel and the oppression of Israel and the shame that that meant from God's even hand behind all these oppressors. And, and they were rooted in all the expectations of this great conquering Messiah to be like David who conquered nations and, and went to war. And they were looking for that kind of man. And so throughout Jesus' lifetime, as he's trying to explain, I have come to suffer. I have come to suffer. They do not get it. John says it's only after Jesus was glorified, that is only after he had died his sacrificial death on the cross, only if, after he had risen to the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit. Only then were their hearts changed to be able to understand what Zechariah was talking about and to accept what Jesus was doing here. And then look at verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, this is back to John, John 12, verse 17. So the people who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continue to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him, because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good, and they're talking shop of all their attempts to try to uh, destroy Jesus' ministry. And they're saying, we're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him, the whole world. I didn't talk about this at first, and I probably should have, but Jesus is coming right after, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem right after he has raised Lazarus from the dead, this great miracle where there's a crowd watching. Lazarus is Mary and Martha's brother. So just a few days before this day, very close to Jerusalem in the town where they lived, I think it was Bethany, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the news about this incredible miracle has spread farther into the city and if Jesus didn't have enough of a messianic <clears throat> crowd chanting before that, now it's even more intense. 
And the Pharisees see all this, and they're just more and more anxious to stop this kingdom of Jesus coming by force. In their minds, they see this crowd, and they see maybe they see tens of thousands of soldiers to, to be willing to zealously die for their Messiah in, in battle. And they're, they're way confused. They don't know what to do. So the disciples are confused. They don't get it. The crowd's confused. They're looking for a certain kind of King Jesus, and they don't get it. And the Pharisees are so confused. They don't get it. So what do we take away from all of this? First, I just have two application points for us this morning. The first is marvel. Marvel. I'm not talking about the comic book and the movie people. I'm talking about just be in awe. Like, like can we worship and be in awe for, for what Jesus is doing? Listen, there, there's a massive irony here. The, the only one in this story who knows what's going on, the only one in this story who knows what to do, is the one who is sovereignly orchestrating his own path to death. The one in the story, the only person who has any idea of what all this means, is orchestrating his own pathway to his own death. Everyone in this picture, everybody in this picture, is grasping after power or security or honor, while the sovereign king who's come to rule them all is running towards self-surrender, towards death. The crowd, they want Rome overthrown. They want Israel's former glory as a nation, nationalism. They want that lifted up. The disciples, soon the disciples are going to be fighting over who gets to sit at Jesus' right or his left in the place of honor. The Pharisees, they want to just keep their grip on their religious and political control. Everyone is trying to leverage Jesus to their own ends, whether it's by coronation or crucifixion. He's a tool for all of them. But in the midst of all of these desires that all fall short of God's glory, only Jesus knows what no one else knows. That these people so so thirsty for national liberation, or these disciples so thirsty for honor, or these Pharisees so thirsty for political and religious control, he knows that those things have nothing to do with what they really need. Only he knows that all those things that they want have nothing to do with what they really need. See, Rome is not the problem for these people. Political confusion is not the problem for these people. A lack of honor is not the primary problem for the disciples. And of course, you know, we, we, we see that from our vantage point. Like, hey, you're looking after the wrong thing. But, but every day, don't we battle with these same things? Don't, don't we battle and hunger and thirst at the foremost in our minds? God, save us from COVID-19. God, save us from co-workers who don't understand us. God, save us from economic hardship that might be coming and political and social disorder or things we don't want. Maybe more personally, God, save us from this terrible conflict, this boss, this foreclosure, this diabetes, save us from this marriage. Hosanna, save us now. And it isn't that God doesn't care about those things. The Lord cares for you. He cares about all those things. You are on his heart. 
Every hair on your head is numbered, and all your afflictions he's afflicted. He commands you to cast all your burdens upon him because he cares for you. But I think what I need to and what we need to not take our eyes off and to keep coming back to is that that's not primarily where we need the most care each day. God can take care of Rome. If Trump's your problem, God can take care of Trump. If the other guys, Biden's your problem, God can take care of Biden. God can take care of coronavirus, COVID-19. God can take care of economic depression that might befall our nations. He can take care of your finances, your health, your boss, your spouse. But Jesus is saying on this day on Palm Sunday, that's not first and foremost what you need deliverance from. I, I have come to liberate you from something so much more terrible, so much more deadly, and so much more deep. It isn't that I don't care about these things, but all these fallen things are outliers of a deeper problem that I've come to liberate you from. See, it's, it's simple for me to save you from your circumstances, the Lord would say. It's simple for me to save you from foreign armies. In a moment like that, I can make a disease go away. What isn't simple is saving you from your own heart. What isn't simple is saving you from my Father's judgment against the world for its wickedness and its rejection of him. What isn't simple is saving you from selfishness that wars against you, from a lack of love, from religious hypocrisy, from self-worship, from enmity and strife within and without, from denying my glory by blinding yourself in unbelief and hardness of heart. That's not simple. Let's come back to Passover again, this feast day, Passover. Remember how awful Pharaoh was. All his oppression, all his arrogance, representing year after year after year of cruel bondage for Israel. So God brings these these plagues, and they culminate in Passover. The angel of death comes across Egypt. But do you ever think about something that's so humbling? Did you ever consider the blood of the Lamb did not protect the Israelites from Pharaoh. Think about this. The blood of the lamb did not protect the Israelites from Pharaoh. The blood of the lamb protected the Israelites from God. God's judgment, God's wrath would fall on every household, whether it was Gentile or Egyptian or Jewish. Whether it was an Israelite slave or an Egyptian prince, God's judgment would fall on every house that would not put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. What are we supposed to take from that? I think what we're supposed to take from that is is that God knows that everyone deserves his judgment for our selfishness, for our rejection of him, and the way that we treat his image bearers. The blood of the lamb did not protect them from Pharaoh. It protected them from God. But here's the irony again. God is the one who sends the blood of the lamb and respects the blood of the lamb because he loves 
and because he is good and because he's a God of deliverance and mercy. And so God in his love gives all those who would trust in him a way of escape through the blood of the lamb, coating the doorposts of every house of everyone who will do it. It doesn't matter whether they were a good Israelite or whether they were a bad Israelite. If they had the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, the angel would pass over the door. And so now on this same feast, the feast of the Passover, the Messiah, the King of Kings comes to introduce himself explicitly to Israel and to say explicitly to the Jewish people and from all the nations gathered there, yes, I am your king. But I have not come to be a conquering king over Rome, over Pharisees. But I've come to humble myself. On a donkey, the symbol of humility. Philippians 2 says, Though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, at the height of the Passover feast, Jesus becomes the new Lamb of God over the doorposts who takes away the sins of the whole world for all those who would trust in him. He becomes what the Bible calls a propitiation. A propitiation is a word we don't use a lot, but it's a good, strong, biblical word. A propitiation is a sacrifice given to God that exhausts all of his anger and takes it away so that all that's left, only what's left from him is mercy and love and tenderness and kindness. Because our sin is taken away. Our sin is punished. It's paid for by this propitiation, this sacrifice. And it's God, the one who is angry at us for our sin, who in his love for us and his mercy gives us the sacrifice, the propitiation. And Jesus now pours himself out to become the blood over the doorposts of our lives. Jesus pours himself out to become the blood over the doorposts of our lives, to be our king. Think again about that day, about that crowd screaming and shouting and clamoring. Jesus longed to be received by these people. You remember what he does? He, in another passage, he looks at Jerusalem and he cries over it. And he says, how long I have wanted to gather you together. Like, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. You won't have me. Not the way I am. Jesus could have received the coronation that day and all the praise and all the power and all the comfort and all the honor from men that would come from that day. But he denied it all because he knows it would have meant our doom. If he had taken that route to glory and not the route of the cross, it would have meant our doom. There would be no sacrifice for our sins. There would be no tenderness and mercy and reconciliation and peace with a God who longs 
for our real problem to be solved. So he humbled himself to death for our sake. So can we marvel at that? Can we just worship him for that? That's my first point. And my, my last point is this, or my last application is this, is depend. Depend. Jesus did not only humble himself that day, but when he humbled himself, he set us free to begin a life of humbling ourselves. That day, he set us free to begin a life of humbling ourselves out of worship and honor of our king. His death did not end in death, but in resurrection power that he gives to his people to do what he did and to be like he is. His death did not end in death, but in his intercession and rising up to the Father's right hand so that he can continue to intercede for us to help us live in the humble ways that he's called us to. You know, we we, we might be forgiven for thinking, and we've talked about this before, that, that after everything Jesus went through on earth, and the horrible crucifixion that he goes to heaven and receives all this glory and all this majesty, and maybe all the glory and majesty he receives, it looks like 24 hours of laying on a bed of feathers and eating heavenly grapes and listening to angels playing harps. But we've talked about this before. What does the Bible tell us our humble king is doing right now? Hebrews 7, 24 through 25, it says, listen to what the Bible tells us our humble king is doing right now. Jesus, because he lives forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, at God's right hand for 2,000 years, he lives to make intercession for you right now. See, Jesus not only laid his life down for you and I, he spends his resurrection life now on you and I. He not only laid down his first life on earth for you and I, he now spends his new resurrection life on you and I. He's given you new life in his resurrection when he comes to live in you through the Holy Spirit. And now in his life before the Father, what does he do? He continues to serve you. This is the character of our Lord. He was humble on earth. He's humble in heaven. It doesn't change. This is his heart. And he calls us to follow in his humility. And not only does he call us to follow in his humility, he now spends his entire life at God's right hand interceding for us to make that possible because it's impossible for us to do in our own power. And don't we all know it? Every day, don't we all know it? And so before the Father, his attitude towards us and our battle to be humble, to follow him, it's sympathy, It's tenderness. doesn't mean we don't grieve him. It doesn't mean we don't upset him like a kid can upset their father. But it never moves away from sympathy. 
It never moves away from mercy for our failures and our sins. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. I cannot tell you how long I have known that verse. I have known that verse for years. It might be my, my functionally, like my favorite passage. And I cannot tell you how clearly I find myself almost every day completely forgetting that verse. Like I, I, I know it in my head, but my heart just stops seeing it, you know? And and I one of the things I'm so grateful that I get to preach today is that I get to immerse myself in these truths again. And I get to try to call you by God's grace, nothing I can do in my power, to immerse yourselves in these truths again. Because if I'm really going really to depend on Jesus as my humble king, I've got to be able to marvel at him again as my humble king. Before I can really depend on him, I've got to really see him, that this really is who he is. And so if nothing else happens this morning, I pray by God's grace that you and I would marvel at who he is and who the word of God screams out that he is. He is not a high priest for you, brothers and sisters, who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but he is one who does sympathize with all of your weaknesses and all of your temptations every day, and mine too. And therefore the author says, come again and again and again to him for every need you have, and I have, day after day, moment by moment. Jerry Bridges says of the sympathy of Christ, this feeling can be felt only by a person who's experienced the same or similar trials and who consequently understands what the other person is going through and has a desire to relieve others of distress. Your humble king took your death for you and now he wants you to believe in his sympathy for you and his ability to care about you in your moment of need, and to, because of that, come to him again and again for that. So that's my second point, depend. Depend. Marvel at the humility of your king, and depend on his, his everlasting humility to care about you and to love you. Your king is still the same humble servant he was when he denied himself and he took up his cross to lay down his life for you. That's still his heart. He stands at his father's side to help us follow in him that. And let's, let's, let's keep going to him in every battle that we need to follow him in that. 